Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. The significance of Easter Sunday carries so much weight, and uh, for that, it is my favorite holiday, and, and if you're tuning in this morning and you're not sure, uh, you know, you understand the significance to a point. Well, this morning, I want, I want to really prove to you why it is the greatest holiday that we've ever had and will ever have to celebrate. So I'll prove that with you this morning. Uh, if you think about it, if you think about the scriptures and the Bible and, and what we've been given, what we call the Bible, the Bible is made up of three main covenants that kind of hold the story of our Bible together. There's a few other covenants in there, but there's three main covenants that kind of hold the whole story together. And the first one is God's covenant with Moses. And then there's God's covenant with Abraham. And then the final one is God's covenant with you. And that covenant includes anybody and everybody who chooses to participate within that covenant. And that's the power of Easter and what Easter means. And so the title of my message this morning, if you just happen to be taking notes or, or you tuned in, maybe you saw it on our Facebook page. But the title of my message this morning is, is a question, and the question is this. What are you waiting for? We'll get to that in just a few moments, but in a letter to the first century Christians, uh, Paul was writing, and, and, and I really want to lay out this message, and, and I'm going to recap a few things that we've talked about all year long, because it all boils down to this moment. And really, if you're part of the exchange, you know that, that here pretty much every Sunday is an Easter Sunday, because everything that we do, everything that we say, always revolves and centers back around Jesus, the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus, his death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection. And so uh, this morning, I want to lay out an approach to defend what Peter says is the hope that is within us, okay, the hope that is within us. So Peter, the apostle Peter, he's writing a letter to the first century Christians, and he tells them in this letter, he says, listen, you need to always be prepared to give a reason of why you have put your hope in Jesus. Now, we call that the apologetics, a reason of why we believe what we believe in defending the faith. And he says you need to always be prepared to give an explanation of why you put your hope into Christ. And so that kind of begs the question that we have this morning, why do you put your hope in Jesus Christ? Jesus said a lot of really great things. He said a lot of cool things. He had some incredible stories, some great parables. But out of everything that Jesus said and did, what is the reason that you have put your hope in Christ? And so I think when you look at a question like that, you have to first ultimately go back to Jesus' first followers, the, the first century followers, excuse me, that were with Christ, that walked with Christ, that 
talked with Christ, that, that saw some of the miracles that he performed, some of the, what John calls in his document, uh, he calls them signs, some of the signs that Jesus performed. And so if you look at those, then you have to ask this question, why did Peter choose to follow Jesus after the night he was arrested and Peter chose that night to unfollow Jesus? He chose to kind of run the other way. He chose to deny. He chose to, to deny ever even knowing the man. He even got so angry that he just screamed out, I never knew him. But then later, he chose to follow him. The answer is simple. The answer is an empty tomb and the breakfast on the beach with the Messiah. See, Peter and Andrew and James and John they did not decide to follow Jesus because of something that they read. They didn't decide to follow Jesus because of something that they heard, a great story that was told to them. Peter and, and Andrew and James and John, these guys, these men decided to follow Jesus because something that they saw with their own eyes, something that they experienced, something that they, they could never, ever ever get away from and, and once you've seen it you can't unsee it and so maybe this will help and I gave this illustration this last year and uh, it's just a great illustration to to understand kind of the perplexity of what I'm talking about but what would happen to you if you lost your birth certificate all the hands I see all the hands going up in the living rooms all around uh, the answer is this nothing Nothing would happen if you lost your birth certificate. Why? Because your birth certificate documents you, but it did not create you, and it doesn't sustain you. So how about this? What would happen if you discovered an error on your birth certificate? You know, like, I mean, error. And I, I've dealt with a few birth certificates. You know, I, I adopted a little girl uh, from Haiti when she was a, a baby. So I actually have two birth certificates on Jenica. And one of her birth certificates, in my mind, is total error because they didn't know the day she was born. They were trying to guess. And her name wasn't Jenica. It was Diunica Joseph. Uh, and she was born in Jeremy. So if you look at the two birth certificates, and now that she's applying for college, she's using the birth certificate that we, that we recreated for her here in the United States when we adopted her here. And it's different from her original birth certificate. So since there's an error on her birth certificate, what would you do if someone saw that error and they claimed that you didn't exist because of that error? Or they, they claim that and you, they don't believe that you exist until you pro provide for them a perfect birth certificate. As crazy as that sounds, that kind of mirrors the convoluted thinking of the world today and how a lot of people think about their faith. Consequently, as their view of the Bible goes, so goes their faith. One more question. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? No, I'm just kidding. Not that question. Which came first, the resurrection or the written accounts that document the resurrection? The answer is obvious. And, and as I even say that, you're like, well, duh, that was kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, but it's a no-brainer. But we put so much stock in everything else, we take all the value off of the actual resurrection. See, 
Obviously, it's the resurrection because the documents that document the resurrection can't pre-exist the resurrection in which they document, right? And so that's why it's so important. And, and the New Testament documents are kind of like a birth certificate because they document the birth of the church and they document why the church was birthed. And most importantly, they document this very, very, very important thing, and that is this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when you were born and your mom and your dad had friends come to the hospital, they didn't gather around the hospital, gather around your mom's bed and go, oh, show us the birth certificate. We want to see the birth certificate, right? That's not the way it went. They came to see you. So my point is that there was something so great that happened. And while the text in the New Testament play a very important role in helping us understand what it means to follow Jesus, the text in the New Testament aren't the reason that we follow Jesus. Right? We don't believe because of a book. We believe the resurrection that inspired this book to be written. The resurrection sparked something and it inspired this book to be written. And that is why we believe. That is why Easter is the greatest holiday ever known to mankind. Because Easter holiday sparked something in you and it sparked something in me. It gave us life, brand new, ultimate, never-ending, abundant life to the fullest. Life to the max. Now, because of the resurrection, something happened. A movement began, and Luke was one of the first ones to write about it. Actually, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written before Luke a little bit. Uh, it was written sometime between 65 to 75 A.D. Uh, Luke's was written, estimate, guesstimation, anywhere from 70 to 85 A.D. And so it wasn't necessarily the first, but he was one of the first ones to really get in on documenting the life of Christ. And so Luke starts off his document, and, and we, we did a whole series this past year on Bible 101 and understanding where we got the Bible and how we got the Bible, how it came about. And so I'm taking a little bit from that for a second. But Luke starts writing this because there was a man by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus, he heard the stories of Jesus. And as he heard the stories of Jesus, he wanted to know more and more and more. And eventually, Theophilus became a believer. He had heard so many stories of Jesus. He had heard some of the messages that Jesus had preached. And, and though he didn't maybe get to meet him on a firsthand basis, he heard so much about him that he became a follower and he became a believer of Jesus and he became obsessed with Jesus. And so Luke, being a friend of Theophilus, begins to document from the very beginning of Jesus' life to the very end everything he could for Theophilus. Now, this is how the, the Gospel of Luke begins. Now, we know it as the Gospel of Luke, but Luke didn't know it as the Gospel of Luke. It was just a document for Theophilus. And it starts off like this in Luke chapter number 1, verse number 1. Luke says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. 
So what he's saying is that something has happened, something very big, something very significant has happened. And Luke is saying, look, I'm trying to tell you, I'm not the only one who has written up these accounts. I'm not the only one who's trying to document and say everything that I need to say because there's a lot of people that have heard what I've heard and seen what I've seen. And there's a lot of people trying to document this here in the region. He goes on in verse 3, and he says, With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second. got to remember this. One, Luke was a doctor, okay? He was a very brilliant mind, a brilliant person. And so he was uh, probably very detail-oriented, right? Thank God that most of our doctors are probably very detail-oriented because there's not any details I want them to miss when they're messing with me. So I'm just saying, Luke was a doctor. Luke knows everything uh, that's going on. He says, listen, I myself, personally, I have carefully investigated everything from the very beginning. I have interviewed people. I have talked to people. I've, I've visited with people on firsthand accounts. And he says this, after all of that, I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, this is really, 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 really ridiculously important. And I'm going to say this, but when Luke was writing this document, and this I have gotten into not really any debates or arguments, but some pretty strong discussions with people who have a hard time grasping this. But when Luke was writing... Luke, the document of Luke, he was not writing the Bible. He was not writing this thinking, okay, what do I need to put down that, that is going to make it into the Holy Bible that will sustain itself for 2,000 years, that, that in 2020, the Exchange Church Houston, Texas is going to be preaching out of my document. I need to be careful what I say. Right? That's not the way he was thinking about it. Luke wasn't writing the Bible. Luke was just giving a very detailed, very investigative report to his friend Theophilus based on eyewitnesses' accounts. Now, having said that, Luke, without knowing what he was doing, Luke really paves the way and lays out why we have a Bible. Now, if that kind of confused you a little bit, you need to go back to our, our podcast or our Facebook and listen to our Bible 101 series, because that's all I'm going to say on that. But, but Luke was laying out how we have the Bible, and it all goes back to the resurrection. So Luke is documenting something fabulous that happened, something in the first century, and, and in his story, he's investigating this, and he tells us a lot of things throughout the, the book of Luke. But one of the things that he tells us after all of his investigation, he tells us a story of a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Everybody say Joseph of Arimathea. All right. So Joseph of Arimathea, and he tells us about this guy. He says he was a part of the Jewish Supreme Court. He was someone in that region that everybody would have known. Uh, Matthew tells us that he was a very rich man. So we know that he had a lot of wealth. He had a lot of influence because of his position. So he was a very popular guy. He was famous in the first century, at least within Judaism. And, and Joseph of Arimathea, he was at the cross. 
You know, we're celebrating Easter today, but think about it this way. Friday, Good Friday, Joseph of Arimathea was at the cross that day. He was there. In fact, Luke, I mean, Matthew, and I believe in the Gospel of, in the Gospel of Matthew and John, I think. Don't quote me on this. But I believe both of them say that uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple, that he became a follower. And a lot of what he did, he had to do kind of under the radar a little bit because of his position in, in the city. But he became a believer, and he stood there, and he's at the cross, and he's there when Jesus died. But when he died, everything changed. When he died, he goes and he takes the body of Jesus down off the cross. Now, when he does that, he doesn't take the body of Jesus down off the cross because he knew at that point that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Up until then, he had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But then Jesus dies and everything changes. So Joseph of Arimathea goes to the cross. He sees Jesus die, and he takes the body down off the cross. And when he did that, it wasn't because he believed that Jesus was somebody that he wasn't. Because when Jesus died, obviously he wasn't. But he did it because he believed that this man was incredible. He believed in Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but it didn't change the fact that Jesus was probably the greatest man that Joseph of Arimathea had ever met. Maybe Jesus was the greatest man that he'd ever come in contact with. So he takes the body of Jesus down, clearly disappointed because Jesus was not who he claimed to be. In fact, Luke says this. He says, I thoroughly investigated everything that happened. And Luke chapter 23, verse 50, he says it like this. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their actions and decision, to their decision and actions. So what he's saying, what Luke is saying is Joseph of Arimathea had a big problem with the fact that they allowed Jesus to be arrested and to be beaten and to be crucified. He didn't, he didn't agree with it, okay? It says that he came from a town of Arimathea. That's why we call him Joseph of Arimathea, uh, not to confuse him with some of the other Josephs. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Now this, there's a whole other sermon in here. I'm not going to go off on it, but when, when men were crucified on that day, their rights were done. Okay, they didn't, their families didn't go and take them off the cross and give them proper burials. They were taken outside of the city and burned. Okay, they were piled up. So, so the fact that Joseph of Arimathea, he went and he begged uh, Pilate for the body of Jesus because Jesus didn't belong to anybody but the Roman city at that time, the, the government. And so he goes and he takes the body of Jesus down and he took it and he wrapped it in a linen cloth and he placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one which no... No one had yet been laid. Now, here's something that your Sunday school teachers maybe forgot to tell you if they even knew it at all. Uh, but when Joseph of Arimathea, and he also had Nicodemus helping him. Some of the other gospels will tell you that and remind you. So Nicodemus, they show up to take this lifeless body off the cross. When they did that, at that moment, when they pulled Jesus off the cross, there are no believers there are no Christians. There is no Jesus movement, okay? That's not happening. Now, there are sympathizers. There are people that are heartbroken and that are crushed. But at that moment in history, nobody believed that Jesus was the Son of God. 
And so again, the fact that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are taking this lifeless body off the cross was evidence enough for everyone to need to know that Jesus was not, I repeat, he was not who he claimed to be. Now here's something else that they probably didn't tell you, but I'm going to tell you this morning. Jesus' teachings were not the driving force behind the Jesus movement. Okay, think about that. Despite every great thing that he taught, it wasn't his teachings that made the movement move. It was Jesus himself that made the movement move. He was the driving force behind who we are today as the church, as the body of Jesus Christ. It was his crazy, outrageous claims about himself, though, that kept the band together, okay? He would say a lot of crazy things, and the disciples, they stuck around. Case in point, after a rather disturbing and confusing message you find in John chapter number 6, Jesus starts talking crazy stuff. He starts talking about people eating his body and drinking his blood. Listen, when he said that in history, a lot of Jesus' followers decided to unfollow Jesus. That was weird. That was creepy. That was borderline blasphemous because the way he was talking. And it was crazy. It was really ludicrous. So there were some people who decided not to follow Jesus. So Jesus, he sits down with his 12 and he says, I want to know, any of you want to unfollow me? Are any of you going to go to my Facebook page or my Twitter page, whatever, you're going to start unfollowing. That's not exactly what he was talking about. But he asked them, he says, does anybody else want to join them and unfollow me? And so Peter, he speaks up. But it's what Peter did not say that was more intuitive, just as intuitive, as what he did say. Now, remember this story. Peter is talking, and this is what he didn't say. He did not say this. He didn't say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you're the most articulate, powerful person I've ever seen. Your stories are unbelievable. And, and the way you tell the parables, I mean, Jesus, you suck me into those parables. And I almost believe them. And, and what are we going to do, right? So Peter and the guys, they didn't decide to stay with Jesus because of what he taught them. In fact, they stayed with Jesus in spite of what he taught them. Because a lot of what Jesus was teaching and preaching, the disciples were scratching their head going, well, he can't say that. He can't do that. He was kind of, he was taking laws and then adding stuff on top of them. And he was kind of turning some things and manipulate. And, and they're like, this is crazy. So they stayed with Jesus in spite of what he was actually teaching them. They hung around because of who Jesus claimed to be. In fact, this is actually what Peter says in John chapter 6 that I was referring to. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Everybody say eternal life. Now, when he says that, we think immediately, we think heaven we think of eternal life, but that's not what he said there. In, in fact, the word, the Greek word is aeonios zoe. 
And if you look at what it says in the Thayer's Greek lexicon, and I'm going to put it up on, on your screen for you so you can see exactly how they write it out. I just copied this directly from them. Aeon means a human lifetime or full age of life, and zoe meaning emphatically and in the messianic sense to enjoy real life. For example, to have true life and worthy of the name. And then it goes on and it says, active, blessed, endless in the kingdom of God. That's what eternal life is. Active, blessed, endless in the kingdom of God. So when, when Peter says this, when he speaks up and he says, God, where shall we go? You have the words of active and blessed and full life in the kingdom of God. You have the abundant life. Everything that you say just produces life. What are we going to do? He wasn't re referencing the afterlife. He wasn't referencing streets of gold. The verse continues. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of abundant and full and blessed life. And he says, we've come to believe and to know that you are actually the Holy One of God. So there it is. That's the reason that these guys, Andrew and, and John and James and Matthew and Peter, that's the reason these guys decided to follow Jesus, and they stuck with Jesus, is because they believed that he was the Holy One of God. But keeping that belief was really contingent upon one thing, keeping Jesus alive. If they couldn't keep Jesus alive, then they couldn't keep that belief alive. They believed that he was the one, Holy One of God. But they had to keep him alive to continue that. So hope died when Jesus died. There were no believers after the crucifixion. Now, if you're not convinced of this, think about this. Everybody, as in everybody, as in all of his most devout followers, expected Jesus to do what all dead people always do, and that is stay dead, right? So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they're preparing the body for burial. They take the body down and they put some spices on it and they wrap it in linen cloth. And they're taking it to be buried and they take it to put in the tomb. And the reason they even prepare it in the first place is because they expected Jesus to stay buried. They expected him to stay there. Nobody woke up early Sunday morning and ran to the tomb to catch a glimpse of Jesus. You know, they weren't the night before on the Sabbath, on Saturday night, texting each other going, uh, hey, what time are you going to get to the tomb? I don't know. I think we should probably get there before sun comes up, right? I don't know. Hey, did you text, uh, did you text Chris? When's he going? I don't know. I'm going to text him right now. I'm going to call him. Hey, Chris, when are you going to the tomb? Oh, yeah, it is tomorrow, isn't it? Right? They weren't planning this big event because nobody expected on Sunday morning that Jesus was going to come back from the tomb. In fact, I don't know if you're like me. Every time I even think about this, I think about the old Carmen song, The Champion, right? And uh, they weren't standing outside. They didn't gather this giant group of people and stand outside and get ready for the big countdown 
and then go 10. Hey, wait a minute, God. Nine. Stop. You're counting wrong. Eight. His eyes. Seven. His fingers are twitching. Six. Right? That's pretty good, huh? I haven't listened to that in years, but listen, I've done so many dramas to that song. I guarantee you I can quote it verbatim. Uh, but nobody was waiting for that moment because nobody expected to get to the tomb and there be no body, right? And so what I'm saying is on the contrary to that thought process of people going to the tomb early that morning to watch the resurrection, they actually, a group of women, a group of disheartened, disillusioned, sad women gathered together and they were headed to the tomb just before dawn to re-prepare Jesus' body for burial. Why they were going to re-prepare it, who knows, maybe it was just uh, they didn't think the guys did a good enough job, I don't know. But nobody expected there to be no body in the tomb. And even when the ladies got there and they found no body, nobody believed it. They started asking. They thought maybe somebody stole the body. They started talking. That was kind of a rumor that started going around. In fact, one of the Gospels tells us that the guard that was at the tomb, he ran back to Pilate because they sent a guard to the tomb uh, because they were expecting the disciples to steal the body and then start proclaiming the resurrection and start this movement back up. So they sent somebody to the tomb to guard it and to seal it. The guard goes back to, to Pilate and says, hey, an earthquake happened, the tomb opened up, and he's gone. Nobody expected there to be no body. So again, remember, there are no Christians. There are just brokenhearted, disillusioned Jesus followers. Until a handful of those followers encountered the risen Savior. Once they saw Jesus, once they talked to Jesus, all the ones that decided to unfollow in that moment decided to refollow. Something powerful happened. And when they did that, something new was unleashed to the world, something standalone, something birthed for a nation, for all nations, something forecasted, foreshadowed, forcing a movement that was fueled by that third covenant that I talked about that holds the whole storyline of our Bible together, and that is God's new covenant for you and for me and for anyone who will just listen and hear it, and everyone gets to partake in the benefit and the blessing that comes by that new covenant that is guided by a new governing ethic. Everything has changed. The resurrection signaled the inauguration of the ecclesia or the assembly, the congregation of Jesus that you and I today, we call the church. We call it the body of Christ. This should be and actually be the, the answer to the question that Peter serves is why we give an explanation to our hope that is in Christ, and here it is, in this divinely inspired sequence of events, the resurrection is the reason that we put all of our hope in Jesus. It is why we exist, and that's why if you're a part of this church, almost every message that comes out of this area of the sanctuary stems from the gospel and the message of the fact, one single fact, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Everything. Everything that we do. Everything that we say. 
This approach to our faith in no way diminishes the importance of scriptures. It actually does just the opposite. The resurrection serves as an apologetic or our argument for the reliability of these scriptures. And here's why I say that. The Christian faith begins with the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, not a birth certificate. Our faith begins when a handful of Jesus followers saw Jesus alive from the dead. And just as the resurrection of Jesus serves as the reason that they would later give for their hope and why they live and believe in him, it also should serve as the purpose of our hope, why we live, why we breathe, why our hope is in him. To state it more directly one more time, I'm just going to say this. We don't believe because the Bible says we believe because Jesus rose. Everything stems from that belief system. That Jesus rose from the grave. Here's a sentence from one of Luke's sermons that, uh, that he documents. From one of the sermons that Luke documents. This is actually Peter, one of the followers of Jesus. Peter's talking to the great high priest Caiaphas. And Peter says this, and Luke writes it down. He says, he, Peter says to Caiaphas, God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of this. We all saw it. We all saw it. We are all witnesses of what happened. God raised Jesus from the dead. We didn't just hear about it. Nobody told me the story. I didn't read it in the Jerusalem Daily or the whatever. I didn't just stumble across this idea. <laughs> he, God raised him from the dead. I saw it. I saw it, and I talked to him. And so the Jesus movement and the church was birthed. <laughs> now I want to backtrack just a moment, and I want to share this with you. And I'm going to be brief this morning. Uh, and, if, and if you say amen, if you'll shout with me, I'll go faster. And every time you text amen or shout amen, I'm going to ask TJ to wave at me in the back. And we're just, and I'm going to speed this thing right along because in here it's a little bit quiet this morning. <clears throat> Thank you, Chris. Now, I want to backtrack just a little bit to a time that Jesus was really step, stepping onto the scene. Now, this is before the cross, way before the cross, but this is a time when John the Baptist is going around, and John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus, and he's preparing, he's telling people what's about to happen, what's about to come. So John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus, and Matthew writes it like this, Matthew 3, verse 2 and 3. John the Baptist says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Everybody say repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Now, he's referencing Jesus. John the Baptist steps onto the scene, and he's referencing Jesus. Now, it's important to understand who he's talking about and who he's talking to, and the times and the, the context. So he's talking to the Jews and he's referencing Jesus, and he's telling them that something is about to happen. And so he's speaking to the Jews, and he says, repent. One more time, say repent. Repent. Now, this word, repent, if you look at the Greek word, it's pronounced this way, metanoi, metanoi. You can say metanoi if you want to. That's a fun word to say. 
And I'm going to put it up on your screen so you can see how it's written out. But metanoi means this, to change one's mind or purpose. To change one's mind or purpose. And then I took this out of the lexicon and I, I copied this directly because I want you to see exactly how they write it out. Metanoi. Meta meaning changed after being with. Wow. Is that not so, so powerful? Changed after being with. And then, and then noi, properly, to think differently after, after the change of mind. Wow. So John the Baptist is going around saying, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is come near. But what he's saying is, listen, you got to change your mind. you got to change your way of thinking after you've been with what I'm telling you you're about to be with. When you're with the one that I'm telling you is about to come onto this stage, everything about you got to change. And you got to understand, when he's saying this, the law and the oppressive system that they were under was so hard and so powerful. The standard that they were to live by was absolutely impossible for them to live by. And then John comes on the scene, and he's saying, repent. When we read that, we think, oh, man, I need to get down on my knees, and I need to, to say a prayer, and, and I need to, to confess all my sins to, to Jesus, which the, the Scriptures never tell us. John, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is the only one that actually tells us to confess our sins. And he didn't say to, to confess them to Jesus. He says to confess them one to another. So when John the Baptist is the preparing the way for Jesus, he says, repent. In other words, change your way of thinking. Change your mind after being with. I'm going to read it in the Amplified Bible. The, the way the Amplified Bible puts it kind of cool. Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist, again, that same passage, he says, repent. Change your inner self. Your old way of thinking. Regret the past sins. Live your life in a way that proves repentance. That proves a change of thinking. Seek God's kingdom purpose for your life. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself steps onto the pages of history. And Jesus is preaching kind of the same message. Jesus says in Matthew 4.17, same amplified version. He says, for the time... From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, change your inner self, change your old way of thinking, your regret, your past sins, live your life in a way that proves repentance, change your way of thinking, and seek God's kingdom purpose for your life, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the kingdom of heaven was coming near. John the Baptist is preparing the way, and he's saying, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, right? Right? Like those TV evangelists, get ready, get ready, get ready. The kingdom of heaven is come near. I mean, things are about to change. you got to get ready. It was coming. But when Jesus came out of the tomb, the kingdom of heaven was here. He was establishing the kingdom of heaven. At that moment, when he came out of the tomb, everything was changing. Everything was prophesied about, was leading up to this moment. Everything was, was pushed to this moment. John the Baptist was leading up to this moment. Jesus himself was preaching up to this moment. And when he came out of the tomb, everything changed. When Jesus rose from the grave, everything changed. 
Repentance had to come, changing the way that they thought about the old system, about the old law, the old system, the way of doing things had to change, and they had to begin to accept the new covenant, the new, after being with Jesus, after seeing and hearing the message, the gospel of Christ, everything in their mind had to change. The new covenant was what Jesus was establishing. And I'm going to close with this this morning. I'm going to go back to a passage that we read at the very beginning. Luke is writing this, and this is Luke chapter 23, verse 51. He says, a man named Joseph, who is a member of the council. And now I'm reading it in the amplified version. That's why it sounds a little different. A man named Joseph, who is a member of the council, Sanhedrin Jewish High Court. A good, honorable man. He had not consented to the council's plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for and expecting the kingdom of God. So I want to just help paint a picture for you just for a minute. Just for a second. I want you to think about this. Joseph of Arimathea, he's at the cross. And he's there and there's probably... You know, I don't know, hundreds, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people. I don't know who all was there at the time. And when Jesus finally dies, a few of the Gospels record it, and they say this. You know, when, when Jesus took his last breath, people beat their chest, and they went away. But with Joseph, it says he stood there, and he waited. He stood there at the cross. Now, he says something. He was at the cross, and he watched Jesus take his last breath. And the whole time, Joseph of Arimathea was believing that something was fixing to happen, right? Think about it. I don't know exactly what he was thinking, but maybe he was thinking that any minute they're going to come running in. Pilate is going to come running in and go, stop, stop, stop. Take him down. Lower the cross. Take him down. Lower the cross. We made a huge mistake. Bandage him up. Get the nails out of his hands and his feet. Bandage him up. I don't know what he was thinking. But I do know this, Luke records it. And Luke says that he stood there at the cross. He's looking at Jesus as Jesus takes his last breath. And he was waiting for and expecting the kingdom of God. Joseph stood there watching Jesus take his last breath. And he's waiting for and he's expecting the kingdom of God. And as he sees Jesus struggling for every breath, he's probably thinking, no, 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 no. This can't be it. This can't be it. This can't be it. I believe in you. You know, he's looking at him going, no, 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 no. This can't be it. I believe you are. I, I know it. I know it. I, I've seen the signs. I've, I've listened to everything you've said. You are. And then when Jesus takes his last breath and he dies, Joseph of Arimathea is dumbfounded. It doesn't really tell us in detail, you know, his reaction, his response. I can imagine that he cried. I can imagine that he sobbed. I can imagine that he took a deep breath it was over it was game over everything that he believed 
and hoped in. Hope just died. Mercy and grace just died, and it was over. The reality begins to set in in Joseph's mind, and I don't know how long he waited, but we know that it was within the same day. He finally, he goes to Pilate, and he says, look, give me the body. Please, I need the, I'm going to take the body. Pilate gives him permission to take the body, and Luke continues to write, and he says this in verse 53. And after receiving permission, he took it down and wrapped it in linen, burial, cloth, and he laid him in a tomb cut in the rock where no one had yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation for Saturday. In other words, it was Friday. This was the last day they could do everything they needed to do in preparation for the Sabbath because on the Sabbath, on Saturday, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't work, so they had to get everything done on Friday. And it says, and the Sabbath was dawning. Saturday was dawning. Now the women who had come with him from Galilee followed closely, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And apparently they weren't satisfied. And it says, then they went back and they prepared spices and ointments and sweet-smelling herbs. They did this because they saw Joseph and Nicodemus put the body into the tomb. And the women thought, you know, we've, we've got to finish this. We, we owe it to Jesus, to the life that he lived, to do better. So they went, and that Friday they prepared. They couldn't work on Saturday. And they prepared to go back to the tomb on Sunday so that they could finish embalming and preparing the body for burial. Obviously. Jesus was the Messiah. He was gone. But it didn't change the fact in their mind that he was an incredible man. He was an incredible teacher, even though in their mind, probably at this point, most of what he taught was wrong. Because he made a lot of claims about himself, and now he's gone. But. Somebody say but. But. But on the first day of the week, see, the Sabbath had come and the Sabbath had gone. He says, Luke writes, he says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women went to the tomb to bring their spices, which they had prepared to finish anointing the body. And they found the large circular stone rolled back from the tomb. And when they went inside, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They were perplexed. And they were wondering about this. And suddenly, two men in dazzling clothes stood near them. And as the women were terrified and they were bowing their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember he told you while you were in Galilee saying the Son of Man must be handed over to sinful man and be crucified and on the third day raised from death to life. Let me tell you something. 
The kingdom of heaven is not near. The kingdom of heaven is not drawing near. What John prophesied about when he was preparing the way for Jesus, when he said, hey, repent, change your way of thinking, because the kingdom of heaven is near. When Jesus stepped onto the scene and he was saying, hey, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I'm here to tell you this morning on on May the 12th in 2020 that the kingdom of heaven is not near. The kingdom of heaven is here. What John was prophesying about is now here. And you see Joseph of Arimathea, he's standing at the cross and he's looking at Jesus' body and he was hoping and he was waiting and he was expecting the kingdom of God. And then Jesus died. And little did Joseph know that three days later, the first day of the week, But on the third day, the stone was rolled away. See, Joseph of Arimathea stood there and he watched Jesus' body turn to death. And Luke writes and says he watched him die. And as he watched him die, he was waiting for and expecting the kingdom of God. And that's not what he got. He got a dead body. Joseph stood there watching Jesus die, and he was waiting for something. But you this morning, over 2,000 years later, we celebrate the greatest day in history. And the greatest day of history, we call it Easter, but it's the day that Jesus came out of the grave. And from that day forth, generation after generation after generation after generation has been celebrating and basking in the goodness of what that covenant promised you and what that covenant promised me and it was life full life and abundant life Joseph of Arimathea was waiting and hoping for the kingdom what are you waiting for the kingdom of heaven is here when Jesus came out of the grave he established something brand new a brand new ethic that every generation from that day forward has lived in the kingdom of heaven is here Paul writes in Romans and he says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking what one likes, but it is righteousness, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So my question to you as the church, and you say, well, Pastor Jared, you know, I'm not even really sure I'm a believer. It doesn't matter what you think you are. What he did was for you. It's just a matter of whether you wake up and realize that you have all the blessings that come with it or not. So, as children of God living on this side of the cross, my question to the church is when are we going to stand up? What are we waiting for? Our mission, our job today is to manifest here on this earth the kingdom of God. Because it's here. Well, what does that look like? I'm so glad you asked. It is righteousness and it is peace 
and it is joy in the Holy Spirit. And so I speak to everyone out there right now, and I speak into every home right now. And I pray that you would get a revelation of this, that every person you come in contact with, every person that crosses your path, every person that you have an opportunity to speak into, that you would do it with these three things, that you would generate life, that you would generate righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, but pastor, what we're going through right now, it's just ridiculous. I've lost my job. I've lost my hope. I'm stuck in the house. Let me tell you something. I don't care where you are. The church is not made up of brick and mortar, but you are the ecclesia. You are the fellowship. You are the righteousness, the representation of God himself. So my question again is when will the church stand up? And live out the kingdom that has already been established for us here on this earth. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I'm going to pray a prayer with you. And if you will, I know this may be awkward for you at your house. But I'm going to ask you to just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, first I want to thank you for the cross. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. Today I recognize and I accept that gift. The gift of grace that I didn't work for or earn, but that you freely gave to me. And as a result of that gift of grace, I choose to believe that I am redeemed. As a result of that grace, I choose to live my life by changing my way of thinking and manifesting the kingdom of God in everything that I do, producing righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Everywhere I go, and to everyone I can, always presenting to others that this gift is for everyone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.